The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. You are listening to Squawk Eye Dent, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 12 of Squawk Eye Dent, recorded on the 3rd of December, 2019, from the Aviator Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Eye Dent, I'll detail a five-day sequence that included a 30-hour layover in Austin, Texas over Thanksgiving. I'll also dive into how to deal with conflicting personalities while on the flight line. We'll discuss hazardous attitudes and why certain attributes can determine the quality of your career. All this and more on this episode of Squawk Ident. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show right after a brief word from our sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Well, episode 11 was a pretty big hit. Uh, the ATC recording was kind of cool to listen to, and I've got a little bit of feedback on that from some listeners. Uh, they really enjoyed it. And so in the future, if I hear anything while on the flight line, I'll be sure to make a note of it, and maybe we can talk about it here on the show. And... Episode 12 is here. Wow, I can't believe it. Uh, Not too long ago, we were just starting this thing out. So uh, here we go. Let's start out with this last five-day trip that I finished up earlier in the week. Well, you know, everyone has to deal with certain aspects of the job that can be rather frustrating, like being away from home during important events and holidays. And considering my seniority, I was expecting to fly over the holiday weekend, uh, and that's exactly what happened. So I started out on this trip on the 25th, uh, I believe it was a Monday, and we flew LA to Charlotte, Charlotte to DFW, landed in Dallas a little bit past midnight, had a 13-hour layover, uh, just enough time to you know catch up on some rest and get a good breakfast uh, going, and then DFW to Seattle, which was about a four-hour and 20-minute flight, and then Seattle back to DFW, landing at DFW around midnight, uh, and they had us staying in Fort Worth, which uh, that time of night, not much traffic, but still about a 30-minute van ride to get to our hotel. 18-hour uh, layover, not bad. Uh, it basically crash hard and then had most of the morning and afternoon to get a decent uh, meal in there. I got some really good barbecue. 
I ventured out across the street from the Layover Hotel and visited a place called Risky's Barbecue. Now, I've been there a few times, and Risky's is definitely a place to go, hang out, get some beer, and enjoy some barbecue. This place has been around since 1927, so you can bet that they know what the heck they're talking about. They have uh, eight Fort Worth locations. The one I visited was right downtown near the stockyards, and it did not disappoint. Now, what I recommend is their their sampler, their combo full smoker. Uh, three meats, comes with a few sides, and the brisket is really, really good. Uh, every time, I've got to have something with the brisket. So I enjoyed some barbecue. I made it back to the hotel room, got ready, and there we were heading off again. Now, we left DFW on day three around 7 p.m., flew to Austin, real quick flight, about an hour and 16 minutes total time. And from Austin, flew to Phoenix, another two hours and 30 minutes. And then from Phoenix, after a little bit of a sit, Flew back to Austin, another two hours and 20 minutes there. So in total, it was only about six hours and 15 minutes of of flight time. Uh, But it was a long day. And the reason it was a long day is because though the flying started around 7 p.m., it just kept going and going until 4 a.m. So it it was basically two legs tacked on with a red eye at the end of it. And we landed in Austin, uh, actually Thanksgiving morning, uh, 4.15 in the morning, something like that. Uh, By the time we got to our layover hotel, it it was about uh, 10 to 5. So the sun was not quite up yet, which is okay. Um, As I've mentioned in previous episodes, uh, flying a red eye, if you get to your destination before the sun comes up, uh, it kind of plays a trick on your body and you can get to sleep pretty quick because you still think it's nighttime. Um, and that's what happened. Uh, crashed pretty hard at the hotel. You know, after day three especially, to have a red eye in the middle of a trip. Um, it definitely is uh, taxing on the body. So I slept hard. Woke up at, I think, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, which uh, it's kind of rare for me to sleep that long. But, uh, you know, not much going on. It was a cold, uh, wet day. It was raining pretty good, uh, off and on for most of the day on Thanksgiving Day in Austin, Texas. And uh, I thought, well, you know, it's getting kind of hungry. So I'll venture out, try to see what I can find to eat. And very, very grateful that the hotel had a full restaurant open uh, with a full menu. And they even had a Thanksgiving Day special. There were a lot of flight crews there. I recognized a couple people down there at the uh, hotel bar or restaurant and uh, enjoyed a nice local IPA and a Thanksgiving plate. So I got my fixings, my turkey, my mashed potatoes, and all that good stuff. Uh, and, you know, couldn't even finish it all. It was just so much. It was a very generous portion. So that was Austin. Uh, stayed there until the 29th. Uh, so a nice 30-hour layover. Uh, I spent most of it sleeping, to be honest with you. It, you just had to catch up on the sleep. 
which is a good thing because on that last day, it was Austin to Charlotte, aircraft swap, and then Charlotte to Los Angeles. Uh, we finished up around 7.30 in the evening, and that last day was 8 hours and 32 minutes of uh, a flying time credit. So, a uh, pretty long day. And it's all legit under the FAR-117. It's uh, legal to fly. Uh, we were legal by 20, uh, 28 minutes. So, um, that was my five-day trip. Now, it, it is difficult uh, being an aviator and being away from family during some of the very special times of the year. I mean, you know, birthdays are important. Holidays are important, and, and you know all the little events, the the little league, and all the the kids' uh, activities. You know you want to be there for as much of it as possible. And unfortunately, we don't live on a nine to five schedule uh, working for an airline. So this was kind of difficult. Um, you know, I had many conversations with home, a lot of FaceTime. Uh, but, you know, it, it is what it is. And luckily, uh, for December, my schedule is a lot more forgiving. I've got a couple weeks of vacation after this training event that's coming up that I'm going to enjoy. And on top of that, I actually got Christmas Eve and Christmas Day off. So yeah, I'm very, very lucky uh, to have been able to work that out with, with my schedule. So now what really stood out on this last trip was my interaction I had with my captain. So walked up to the gate um, about an hour before departure on the first leg, uh, saw him standing there, introduced myself and, you know, a little bit of uh, a discussion about how we got there. Did he commute? Uh, did I commute? You know, um, what have you been up to? Do you have any plans uh, on Thanksgiving Day? Are you going to just stay at the hotel? Or, you know, what's what's going on? And so we had a little bit of a ch uh, chit-chat back and forth. But when we got in the cockpit, a uh, little bit of a different attitude was displayed. Uh, I guess my captain had some training uh, the week before uh, for his recurrent training cycle. And in the simulator, his training partner was uh, Nefo, who had been with the company about five, six years, according to him, and just was lost. Uh, he, he did not have a good experience. And, and these kind of things happen sometimes where your training partner maybe didn't study or uh, w whatever reason. And so you just got to kind of get through it and pull each other up uh, so that you both you know, are successful in the training and you pass. Uh, and so, but this was not the personality of my captain. My captain's attitude was, you know, you're, you really need to study, you need to come prepared. And if you don't, you're, then you're stupid and you just, you know, you're lazy and you don't deserve to be here. And so I got an earful for a couple days, actually, about, you know, FOs that are not prepared and, and, and not, and not just FOs, but captains as well, that, you know, that uh, people that they should be really dealing with studying and knowing their airplane if they're typed in the airplane. And, and really he had a, a strong personality and a strong opinion about 
the pilots being you know very dedicated to the career and the aircraft knowledge and you know they should be studying if they're weak uh, at home and and you know the guy he had a lot of good points uh he'd been on the airbus 20 years and you know has had a very successful career and he's a very very smart guy he he could spit out you know FARs uh by the number uh so you know i give him credit to the fact that he knew his stuff but he created an environment that was a little bit harsh uh and a couple times he caught himself kind of having a a negative opinion of FOs and he's well you know I'm not trying to be a dick to you but you know I just I'm just frustrated because of this last experience and I had to deal with it and you know I just it just was you know I'm sick and tired of people not being prepared and so we got to have quite a few discussions about this um but at the same time I think he felt like I had to prove myself to him because of his previous experience. So a lot of quizzing was going on, asking me, well, do you know this? And do you know that? And do you know this? And and there were some things that I learned on that trip that he explained to me better than uh, any explanation I've had in the past about flat ratings on engines and, um, you know, uh, accelerated stop distances. I mean, we, we kind of had that those discussions uh, when we were in the flight line. And I don't mind those because for me, it's kind of like a refresher. As long as the information is correct, that's great. And, you know, and I did take away quite a bit, but it was a little bit of a rough start. Um, I think it's because strong personalities get together. And if you don't mash up and see eye to eye, then it can be a little uh, daunting, which kind of got me thinking about some of the aspects of flying that we learn from the very beginning, from a private pilot license, which is hazardous attitudes. And that's what I want to talk about here. So in this segment, from the flight line, we'll discuss hazardous attitudes. So when you're starting out in aviation, you're getting your private pilot license, and you're going to be tested on recognizing what the five hazardous attitudes are, and you're going to try to determine if you have any of them, if your personality uh, favors a particular hazardous attitude in aviation, and how to recognize it and how to combat it, and make sure that those kind of things don't happen while you're flying, and the risk that's involved with these hazardous attitudes can be corrected. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about this today. The first hazardous attitude that they talk about is anti-authority. This is uh, commonly referred to as uh, people that say, don't tell me what to do. Uh, Pilots with anti-authority, they have an attitude that tends to believe that rules, regulations, and safety procedures don't really apply to them. For example, an anti-authority pilot may neglect their checklists or refuse to take advice from instructors or ATC. Now, all of us have a little bit of this hazardous attitude of anti-authority. It's just something 
that is, I think, ingrained in us. But what's important here is that we recognize it and we learn how to uh, combat this anti-authority risky behavior so that we can have a safe outcome in flying. Uh, some of the others are impulsivity. Uh, these are people that do things quickly. I used to call this the uh, Jackie F uh, Chan effect. So if I was flying with someone and you know they would grab a control and manipulate something quickly and then they realize, oh, I was the wrong you know altitude or, or I meant to do heading or whatever. So they manipulate stuff too quickly and I would say, oh, you're going to get the Jackie Chan award because you know you're 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 doing karate chops really fast with the controls. So uh, impulsivity, doing things quickly. Uh, according to the FAA, it's an attitude uh, found in pilots who feel that they need to do something fast, anything, immediately, instead of taking a moment to think about things uh, so that they can take the best course of action. And a pilot that has an impulsive attitude does the first thing that comes to mind. Reacting too quickly can also lead to irrational decisions, uh, skipping steps, pre-flights, rushing, uh, and just to get home. Uh, and on the airline side of things, we call this uh, get-home-itis. Uh, you know, we kind of are doing our best on that last leg to, to get home and, and kind of do things maybe a little too quickly because we're in a hurry. So uh, that's also uh, something that we talk about on the last leg of any sequence. You know, any uh, in the briefing, are there any potential threats? And it's like, well, it's the go-home flight. So, you know, first off, anything that could happen can, can happen. Uh, but let's not rush through things to get home. Uh, make good decisions. Uh, also, there's a couple more invulnerability. Uh, it won't happen to me. People that just fly along thinking, ah, I'm, I'm never going to get a engine fire. Uh, you know, what, what do I care? But yeah, you could. It could potentially happen. And just, you know, understanding that it could happen. Uh, the way to to fix this one is to just be concerned with the possibility of uh, safety-related issues happening. Uh, macho is a good one. Uh, so I can do it. A pilot says, ah, I can do anything. You know, uh, a macho attitude uh, in pilots are always trying to impress others and prove themselves by taking unnecessary risk. Both men and women are susceptible to a macho attitude which leads to foolish and often dangerous behavior. While pilots must have a high level of confidence in their abilities, it's important to avoid becoming overconfident and adapting a macho attitude. And then the last one is resignation. Don't see this one very often, but it does, uh, it does happen, and sometimes people might feel this way on the inside, but they can kind of catch it uh, and before they say something or do something that displays resignation. Uh, these are pilots with an attitude uh, of resignation. They lack the confidence and conviction, and they believe they can make a difference, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not going to matter kind of a thing. It doesn't matter what I do kind of attitude. So this attitude is particularly dangerous for pilots in an emergency situation because they believe that they're helpless and they resign to their fate instead of taking action. So what's the big deal about these hazardous attitudes? Why, why do we care? Well, you know, these attitudes don't promote safety. They don't 
you know, you have to be confident. You have to be skilled. You have to make decisions. There's a reason being an airline pilot is one of the most stressful careers uh, out there. I think uh, firefighting and ambulance or EMT was uh, two and three. Uh, and police officer was down there for sure. Uh, surgeon was also on the list. If I find the list, I'll put it in the show notes. But uh, I found it very interesting that an airline pilot was number one stressful job. So it it goes without saying that with those stresses, uh, there are hazardous attitudes that can rear their ugly head into your personality. And this is something that they teach us early on in our general aviation career as we're getting started uh, with our private pilot courses. And you're actually tested on these questions to find out uh, what your attitude might be and how to correct it. So here we are talking about hazardous attitudes, something that you learn early on in your aviation career as a private pilot. And then again, you'll learn it over and over again with all the ratings that are required uh, in your training. Uh, And, you know, that's another question that I often get uh, from friends and family. And they want to know, well, how many licenses, you know, did you get? What's your training like? And everyone has a little bit of a different path to take. Uh, for myself personally, I went through the uh, the private sector uh, vocational style training where you you go to a flight school, you get your private pilot license, and you fly along, you get the requirement in terms of hours taken care of, and then you can go on to be an instrument uh, pilot. So you have to train to be an instrument pilot, meaning flying not by looking outside the aircraft, but uh, by usually using a, a view-limiting device that you wear on your head, kind of like a big hat that prevents you from seeing outside. And you can only look at your instruments. And that is what is referred to as instrument flight training. And from there, uh, you can go on to getting your multi-engine rating, your commercial ratings. Uh, Now, commercial rating is required if you are going to be a pilot for hire, meaning someone's paying you to fly them around. And uh, as a private pilot or an instrument-rated private pilot, you're not allowed to accept compensation for flying around. So you have to get commercially rated. A little bit harder to do. You need a lot more flight time under your belt to get that done. Um, but, you know, there's commercial rating, multi and single engine ratings uh, in relation to that. From there, that's where most people follow a path that leads them to become a flight instructor. Uh, there are single engine flight instructors, multi engine flight instructors, and instrument rated flight instructors the CFI, the double I, and the MEI, as they're referred to. So most people go down a path to become a flight instructor. Now, as a flight instructor, you'll then be paid to teach the private pilots, uh, instrument-rated pilots that want to become rated as such, and you'll get up there and you'll build time by teaching. And this is a great way to build time until you have the minimum for an air transport certificate 
or an ATP. So uh, you build time, and then once you become an ATP, uh, or at least you have the hours to become an ATP, you take a, a very extensive written test, and then you can start applying for an airline or a charter job. Now, most people, not all, uh, are, are shooting for the airline job. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the $64,000 question. How do I land an airline job? Well, there is no easy answer to that. And it changes not only with an individual's circumstance, but it also changes with the cyclical nature of the industry. Uh, when I first started out and tried to start looking for employment, it was rather difficult to get a job, especially an entry-level job uh, with a regional airline. Now, I could have gone through a corporate or I could have gone through a charter uh, operation, but I chose to set my goal on a regional airline. And, you know, it, it did take me a couple interviews before I was able to land a position with the regional airline that I used to work for. And how that training uh, really kind of kicked off the, the career is it was, it was very difficult. And at the time, I can remember on one of my first days of training, uh, we were in a classroom environment, and there was about 40 of us in the classroom and an instructor in the front and a, another obstructor, instructor observing uh, in the back of the room. And the instructor leading the class uh, told everyone, all right, everyone, look to your left, and I look to your right, and take a good look. Study up, because odds are one or both of those individuals aren't going to make it. They're not going to make it past this training. And it was an effort to get everyone to really study. So, you know, as an entry-level job at a regional airline, uh, it was very stressful. And there was a lot of studying, a lot of late nights, and it was not easy. Uh, we didn't have all the computer-based technology that you know, really does help out with uh, asking the same questions over and over again until you, you know, get them right and have comprehension on, on what it's asking. And, you know, we, we had books and we had to go through and highlight and make post-its and, and note cards and flashcards and we'd quiz each other and limitations and, you know, thrust ratings and internal turbine temperatures. And, I mean, it all had to be committed to memory. And we were really rebuilding the airplane. Now things have gotten a little bit more, not easier, but a little bit more streamlined. So now we have you know, online training tools, computer-based programs, computer-based training facilities, and they really do help with getting the training that's necessary uh, ingested in a short period of time. So tomorrow, I will be participating in my recurrent training cycle. Um, so what's involved with that, you know? Um, I'll give you a little bit of what we do here at Legacy Airlines. Now, this is my third cycle of going through training. And uh, on the Airbus, the first day, it is a mixture of all types of pilots from 
all different types of fleets because it's ground school. And what we're really discussing on day one is we go over things like security and, uh, you know, recurrent uh, training, uh, recurrent human factors. Uh, we even do you know, some HR classes on, uh, you know, disrupting biases and how to be, you know, more politically correct and, and all the necessary things that you would think that you would do in a recurring training cycle. And then I think halfway through the day, they split us up and uh, after lunch and, you know, the Airbus guys go one way and the guys and gals on the 7-3 go another and 7-5 and so on and so forth. And then the second half of the day, we review systems and, and uh, kind of go through those motions. So day one is a lot of classroom work. Day two, however, uh, is uh, prep for maneuvers validation in the simulator. Now we go into uh, a briefing room. We talk for a couple hours about what we're going to do, the maneuvers that are going to be required to be executed to proficiency. And you're expected to know uh, your callouts, your flows, uh, everything in relation to whatever maneuver is uh, is being asked to do. Now, maneuvers uh, include how to uh, go through the motions of an engine failure at takeoff, uh, or a single engine landing, or um, you know high speed aborts. Uh, all the things that you want to be able to do in a second nature type of urgency. So that is what day two is. It's, a, it's the first day of the simulator and you get in there and you're, you bang these things out one after another, after another, after another. And after four hours, you are mentally exhausted. I mean, you have really just been put through the ringer. I mean, some people go through one event in real life in you know maybe once every few years and we're doing about a dozen of them in the course of four hours so you just knock it out bang 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 and just keep going and you know once the simulator instructor you know sees that you are able to do everything to proficiency you know they, they go and they debrief uh, what you did what you could have done better and what you did well and then you know, you go rest, and then on day three, you come back, and that's uh, on this particular cycle, uh, we're doing uh, more maneuvers and what they call uh, advanced training or uh, recurrent advanced training or RAD. And in there, we do all kinds of things like terrain avoidance and wind shear and, um, you know, ground proximity alerts and, and all the things that uh, are not necessarily a maneuver but are more of a, a procedure. So, and there's training involved in that and evaluations. So it's three days of fun. Uh, you're getting beat up pretty good in that simulator. It's nonstop. There really isn't much time uh, to kind of you know, do things over again and mess around. So uh, if, you know, usually you need to be retrained on something, uh, you can be retrained. Uh, and then uh, as long as you can get it right, the second time if not you got to come back and you know it's not a big deal you just come back and get a little bit more training and, and the company that i work for at legacy airlines is very good about that but like i mentioned before it's always a good idea to be over prepared and underwhelmed than the other way around 
So they really push for you to get the training done. And they have very excellent study guides and training material on the company website. And then there's a lot of third-party affiliates that also put out training material, including uh, our union representatives that put out some training links. So training, it's a lot of fun. And mine starts tomorrow. So a term that we often hear in the training center, and I heard it both at the regional carrier and I heard it here at the legacy carrier, and that is cooperate and graduate. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that if you have a good attitude and you come into this prepared the best you can, that no matter to a certain degree you know, you, what your outcome is, you're going to do fine. They're going to go out of their way to get you trained because they've invested a lot of money in, uh, you know, getting you ready to go, ready on the flight line. And so it's always going to be a, a sense of let's get this guy what he needs and let's get him through the training. So there's a common theme here, and that is if you have a good attitude and you put your best foot forward and you do your best to train you know, you're going to get the most out of the training that you're going to receive at an airline carrier. And it's the same really everywhere you go. When it comes to aviation, the attributes that every pilot should at least strive to have are very particular. Now, we already talked about hazardous attitudes. These are things that could negatively affect safety and performance. And recognizing them gives you the power to control them within yourself as an individual. But as a professional pilot, you want to look at things that are going to make you stand out. Okay, so anybody can show up, fly the line do their job. At the end of the day, you know, okay, you know, they, they fly, they can read the checklist, they can, they can use the stick and rudder, you know, great. But when the pressure is on and the abnormal uh, event happens, are you going to instinctively perform well or are you going to clam up? And that's really something that is crucial to having a safe, long career. You've all heard the the term, there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there really aren't any old, bold pilots. Well, that simples it down a little too much, in my opinion. What am I talking about? I'm talking about positive attributes to be an excellent pilot. Now, I believe that these are things like humility, respect, confidence, a learner, optimal at precision, proper planning. You know, what are, what are these about? You know, what do you mean humility? Don't you know I'm a pilot? Haven't you heard all the jokes? You know, you're in a room full of 100 professionals. There's one person from each profession. How do you know which one's the pilot? He'll tell you. Now, there comes a bit of ego with being a pilot. Um, and... Part of that is confidence. Part of that is because you have to be 
you know, sure of yourself uh, in your actions, in your skill level, uh, because you can't fake it. You really can't. So you got to study up and you have to, you know, work on the technical aspects of the job. But the job is not a, just a technical thing because then a computer could do it. And as of yet, computers can't fly. So, uh, you know, despite all the, the negative stereotypes of, oh, don't you just push a button that says take off and land and cruise? And how hard is that? No, 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 <laughs> that's not the case. So let's talk about this uh, humility. Okay, so humility is the ability to respect others that you fly with, other professionals. Uh, you have an attitude that is ready to accommodate the thoughts and the opinions of others. And, you know, these are others, we're talking about both people that are your senior and your junior. So, you know, respect the captain for the fact that they've been here a lot longer and they've experienced a lot and they've got the knowledge and they have the endorsement, the sign-off, and they've earned those stripes. At the same time, you know, captains need to respect the first officers or the FO. Uh, you know, a lot of them may be newer and not have uh, as much experience. However, uh, just because that is a fact doesn't make them, uh, you know, not worth listening to. So, kind of respect what they're trying to say. Correct if you have to. It takes humility to listen and absorb vital lessons around you. And if your eyes are closed closed off to those lessons the only one who's going to lose out is you so i was diving into uh you know how i can find any resource that talks about these attributes and so with my research i did find a post on a website called aviationuniverse.us and in there they had something called top attributes of an excellent pilot it was first posted on march 20th of 2018 it's a, a blog of some kind uh, by the author david reed and he talks about humility and respect and and confidence and you know it, respect is paramount because when you are in a profession like ours, the best outcomes always come when you respect the pilot that you're flying with, the passengers, the cargo, and you you give them all their due credit and the time so that you make the right decisions and the vital elements don't get overlooked. Confidence is also a a very important positive attribute. Now, there's a big difference between being confident and being arrogant. Now, arrogance, as we know, is part of a hazardous attitude, but confidence uh, is to at least some degree uh, something that comes with hard work. And an excellent pilot will be fully confident of their skills and judgment if they put in the hours. And there are instances that will demand quick action. So for those pilots, it could mean life or death to both themselves and their crew and even their passengers. So a highly confident pilot is always able to act swiftly while relying on their know-how and 
the right decision making for safety. So well, these sound like, you know, kind of no-brainers, right? Well, it's something that we have to be reminded of, I think, especially after flying with someone who was very opinionated, who had a, a strong opinion about the people that they fly with and first officers and, and how all oh, first officers are, you know, they're all weak and they don't know enough about the airplane instead of going home on social media, they should be studying systems and, and profiles and okay, you know, that's, that's their opinion. But at the same time, by having that kind of opinion, you're, you're taking away the fact that it's the individual that matters, not the group. So these attributes, you know, we'll, we'll finish it off with the last one that I want to talk about, which is to be always a learner. So it doesn't matter if you have 5,000 hours or 50,000 hours. As long as you're constantly looking to sharpen your skills, you'll always be adapting and learning with the changes that are ongoing for a pilot. Flight training practices are always including new technology and new techniques. So if you learn an airplane, you become extremely confident in your abilities to fly that airplane. You have thousands of hours. and you're not really willing to learn the new procedures or the new techniques or even a new airplane, well, then you're going to get stuck. And you got to ask yourself, I mean, is that what you want? For some people, maybe that is. Uh, but technology is dynamic, you know, and in the light of this, no pilot should ever, you know, th there's no pilot that knows everything, okay? And, but in aviation, you're, you should be striving to learn as much as you can because that's gonna give you the most opportunities for your own future. Well, we've discussed flying the line here for quite some time, and the attitudes and attributes that pilots have. We talked about a little bit of recurrent training and what's involved there, and we've really just scratched the surface on all of it. So, with that said, I'd like to introduce our next segment, which is everyone's favorite, There We Were. So there I was, a newer captain at a regional airline based in New York City with a code domicile of both JFK and LaGuardia. I was on reserve and I got a phone call from crew scheduling that said, we have a turn for you, captain. You'll be flying LaGuardia to Raleigh and back and you'll finish up this evening around 6 p.m. I said, great, that sounds fine. So I packed up my kit bag, left my crash pad, which was in Queens, New York, and I took the shuttle to the airport, made it there with plenty of time to spare, enough time to pull up a release, check the weather, uh, make sure that my aircraft was sound, didn't have any open write-ups, maintenance was good, and got to the airplane, checked the AML, did my pre-flight, and uh, introduced myself to our flight attendant, and they started boarding the aircraft. 
And I said, well, have you seen the FO? I, it looks like this FO's, you know, senior, and this is his line, and this is the first trip, first turn on, on the trip for him. So, you know, he looks like he signed in. Where, where do you think he is? Flat chance, I don't know. I, I don't know him. Oh, okay. So 30 minutes prior to departure, still no FO. Now I'm starting to worry. Is this guy going to make it? You know, what's going on? And about 20 minutes prior to departure, he shows up and he says, uh, hey, so looks like I'll be babysitting you, huh? And I said, uh, excuse me, what? He says, yeah, all you new captains. There's nothing but new captains in New York. That's where they send all the new captains. And I got to sit here and babysit all you guys, man. You guys are a bunch of, you know, and I'm just like, whoa, this guy. <laughs> Talk about arrogant, right? Uh, which hazardous attitude do you think he was displaying? So I kind of let that go. And I said, okay, well, you know, why don't we just, let's just get going, okay? And he said, yeah, I'll go do a walk around. I'll be back. So he throws his kit bag onto the seat and he walks out onto the jet bridge and onto the tarmac and he's doing a walk around. Now, a pre-flight walk around is very important. You know, you're, it's the first time you're in the airplane. Your, your life and everybody else's life that's on the airplane is, is you know, dependent on during a thorough pre-flight. Because if there's something wrong with the airplane, you want to catch it while you're on the ground. Before you're in the air, you get my drift. So this guy, look out, and he's got a cup of coffee in one hand. He's got his cell phone in the other hand. He's talking to his whatever girlfriend and he's doing the pre-flight. And I'm thinking how unprofessional this guy, you know, this is going to be a quick turn. You know, it's out and back and you know, I'm already seeing stuff I don't like. Okay. But still trying to keep an open mind. So he gets back in the cockpit and you know, I'm, digging in my kit bag looking for something or rather and I turn around and I see two fuzzy dice hanging from the overhead panel on one of the handles and I look at him and I say are you are you kidding me he's like what I'm like are you, are you seriously kidding me you know he's like oh is that a problem I say yeah actually that is a problem uh you know, you can hang that in your car or in your RV or, or whatever, but you can't hang it here, okay? It's bad enough that, you know, we're, we're regional pilots and everybody thinks that, uh, you know, we don't deserve to be here or uh, we make too much money or whatever. You know, don't add to the stigma. Just take it down. It's very unprofessional. He goes, oh, it's going to be one of those trips, huh? This guy was just racking them up, you know? And I, again, I really believe in picking your battles. I, I let that one go. And the whole flight, he was kind of encringing on my duties on top of his duties. And like, he, he thought he was the captain from the right seat, basically. Okay. And the comments coming out of him were, you know, as expected, uh, you know, oh, you know, I'm ready to upgrade. I've been here a couple of years now. And, and, you know, I can't believe I, you know, still like 100 numbers away from upgrade and this is bull crap. And, and I'm like, well, listen, man, uh, you know, you seem like a smart guy, you know, and you, you clearly, you know, know what your job is and you know what my job is because I can see you're doing some of the things that I'm supposed to be doing, like turning lights on and off. You know, that's not, that's not your job. So let me just tell you this, you know, your attitude 
is going to change when you go through training and you're now in the left seat as a captain and you're going to figure out that all that responsibility lies on you. If anything happens, you're the one in front of that review board. You're the one that has to go to that congressional hearing or, you know, the NTSB hearing. So there's a lot of humility that it demands. You know, you're going to learn this. And he scoffed at me and he says, man, you know, I, yeah, whatever, newbie. <laughs> just, okay, this is not going well. You know, this guy clearly has uh, something against me because I'm a, I'm a, was a junior captain at the time. Um, and I just kind of let it go. I, I wasn't going to get through to this guy in one flight or two flights. So I let it go, you know, just kind of tried to keep the peace and not get flustered by just the blatant arrogance coming from this guy. And at the end of the flight, you know, I'm still trying to be nice. And the guy is like, oh, yeah, I got to do this turn again. But I got another newbie I'm going to be babysitting. Oh, like, oh, who's uh, who's your next f- captain? He goes, oh, this guy Dave something or other. And, and I, I said the name. And he's like, yeah, that's the guy. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Well, have fun. Say hi to Dave for me, you know. And he was actually one of my classmates in my upgrade class. So. Uh, as I walked off the jet bridge after my turn, uh, I see Dave coming down. I'm like, hey, Dave, what's going on? He's like, oh, yeah, what's going on, Tony? So we talked a little bit. I'm like, hey, well, have fun with this one. He's like, oh, yeah? I said, yeah, I'm not going to say anything. Just have fun with it. When you get back, give me a call. We'll go you know, grab a beer, catch dinner, and and talk about it. Said, okay. So he goes and flies, comes back. and He goes, hey, man, I'll meet you down at the diner. I'm like, okay. So we, we head down to the diner for dinner. And I'm like, so how'd you like it? He's like, oh man, he loved you. I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh, he couldn't stop talking about how you're trying to lecture him and say he had an attitude problem and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, I said, Dave, let me ask you something. The fuzzy dice. He goes, yeah. Did you make him take him down? He goes, no. (laughs) I said, really? I mean, it was like one, you know, screenshot or YouTube picture or YouTube video away from making the news right he's like oh man i know he goes i just you know i just let that one go i I figured no one could see it and i was like all right man (laughs) so yeah now mind you uh, this particular individual you know they were young and i don't know them they could be a perfectly mature professional individual but on that particular day, the impression that I got was not as such. And yes, he is still flying. I saw him uh, passing through in uniform, uh, flying for one of the big carriers. So I wish him all the best, and hopefully uh, he's picked up a couple things about uh, positive attributes, and he knows about hazardous attitudes, and, and hopefully he's got some humility under his belt. But it's not all, you know, arrogant young kids either. Uh, I can remember a time flying out of Chicago uh, as an FO for a regional carrier, and I was paired up for the month with a captain who was, let's just say, 
notorious for being a stickler. Like we're talking every flight with this guy was like having a check ride. Okay, every word on the checklist had to be said exactly. Every little nuance of the job was going to be looked over with a fine-tooth comb, and that was just the way he operated. He he could memorize pages in the manual. He could tell you what the FAR number is. He's like, well, that's FAR number 121 dot blah, blah, blah. And the guy was really on point, but because of this, you know, extreme ability to recall facts and figures and his very particular way of, you know, having everything just just right, he had a reputation. And a lot of the younger FOs that I knew uh, said, oh man, you're flying with this guy? Now, we're going to call him uh, Captain Jim. Now, every time I would get off an airplane and there was another flight crew waiting to to take the airplane out you know as we swapped out the fo's would always look at me and go oh dude calling sick like what oh you're flying with you know captain jim calling sick like i'm not gonna call him sick man thanks thanks and that was it then you know he uh he'd go off to the airplane and i'd go on my way now give you a little bit of background first flight i flew with uh, jim i was warned by not just previous captains and FOs, but uh, some of my friends as well. I say, oh, you're flying with that guy? Oh, dude. Uh, every ride's like a check ride. I'm like, well, whatever, you know, fine. You know, and I'll believe it when I see it. And sure enough, after the first day of flying with this guy, I was a little frustrated. He, you know, he made me redo a bunch of checklists and things. And anytime I'd say uh, uh, something that wasn't just right or just as it was printed in the checklist he would correct me and at first I was a little uh, hurt and offended by it I thought man this guy you know but you know I got to the overnight and made a phone call called home and talked to my wife and said man this guy is like really particular everything I say and every little uh, nuance and he's quizzing me and and he knows like he's reading chapter and verse to me you know and it's just it's just really frustrating and she says well is what he's saying wrong and i said well no she says well flying with someone like that doesn't that just make you a better pilot and i gave it pause and i said well i guess so but it's just so tiring she's like what is tiring to get it right it's tiring to strive to do the best job you possibly can and I was like, well, you have a point, you know, I, you know, you, you're on to something there. And she says, okay, well, why don't you just call this month a learning month? And at the end of the month, you know, you try to do your best and see if you can catch him do something incorrect and then you can call him on it. And I bet you if you're not timid or, you know, as long as you're respectful, as long as you have that going for you and you've got a good attitude, I bet you you guys will end up being friends. And <laughs> like, huh? Okay, so we flew the month together. Now, by the end of the first trip, uh, you know, I I didn't get offended. I didn't get hurt. Uh, I just was like, all right, thanks. Yeah, uh, okay, I'll say that better or I'll, uh, I I called for that incorrectly. Oh, okay, yeah, thanks. And so 
I just kept that attitude going because I tried to make the best of the situation. And what ended up happening was he kind of let his hair down and you know wasn't writing me as much uh, toward the end of the first week. And then the second week showed up and he goes, oh, so you didn't call him sick, huh? And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, most of the guys call him sick after the first, you know, I, I get different FOs every week. I'm like, no, I, my schedule says we're flying together for the whole month. So unless something comes up at home, I don't see why I should modify my schedule. I said, I, I really don't have issue flying with you. He's like, oh, okay. So out of this kind of, I don't know if it was courage or just, you know, I just was patient and showed him the respect that he was due. And because of that, he really kind of started showing me a little bit of respect. And, you know, was, instead of barking at me, he started talking to me. And by the end of the month, we actually had a pretty good month together. I hung out with him a little bit. And we had a scenario that probably would not have gone the way it did with him, with his personality, if he didn't feel comfortable with me. And that scenario was, uh, it was a, a wintry day in Detroit. We were doing Chicago to Detroit. And there was a 737 holding in the holding pattern uh, at one of the markers. Uh, before uh, the Detroit approach. And we were in the stack above them, a thousand feet above. And all of this holding was due to the fact that there was a winter storm that blew through earlier. The It stopped snowing, the runways were clear, but now the low pressure was coming through and the winds at the airport were very gusty, gusting to 35, 36 knots. And because of the direction of the wind, it was exceeding the landing limitation of most airplane, which which under dry conditions is about 30 knots and sometimes 35. It depends on the airplane that you're flying. In our scenario, it was 30 knots. And uh, I'm not sure really what the 7.3 uh, crosswind limitation was for the conditions of the day, but uh, what was being reported was exceeding their limitation. Now, you know, uh, Jim looked at me and he says, well, the manual states very clearly that we cannot land with the wind in excess of 30 knots under these conditions. And I said, yes. He says, but the manual does not say that we can't shoot an approach and get down to minimums and do a wind check. And if the winds are below the maximum crosswind limitation, I have no problem with landing this airplane. You've been flying with me now for you know, almost a month, and I know your abilities and so far. If you're comfortable with it, you can just continue to fly. Unless you want me to fly it, then I can fly it. But um, we'll get a wind check at, at uh, 200 feet off the ground. And, and if it's below the maximum crosswind component, we can execute a landing. And if at any point you don't like what you see or you think that the airplane won't be able to maintain directional control, just go around, and then we'll just go to our alternate. I said, well, okay. That, that, level of confidence that he had in my abilities made me feel very good about myself and you know and I said well yeah that, that's a great idea so he he wrote down some wind directions and velocities that could potentially be reported and he tells the tower uh well listen uh you know we can't land with the current winds uh, as they're reporting on the ATIS but if the winds are you know 270 at this or 280 at that 
uh, or 290 at this, um, those winds are the maximum winds we can sustain to, for this crosswind, and then we can, we can land. And the tire goes, okay, so what do you want to do? And he was like, well, let's, let's go ahead and shoot the approach, and then I'll get a wind check from the tower. And so they're like, okay, so you're cleared in. And, and first they gave the option to the 737 that was holding beneath us. And they're like, well, do you want to try it too? And I said, no, no. They said, we're going to go to our alternate. We're not even going to try. So they left the hold. They went into their alternate. And we got cleared to shoot this approach. And as we're on final, we're, you know, we're descending on the localizer, on the ILS. And um, we get to 1,000 feet. And the tower says, all right, uh, regional airline, uh, one, two, three, you're clear to land. Uh, would you like a wind check? He goes, negative, understand, clear to land. So he looks at me, he says, okay. I'm like, yeah, so far so good. Now, mind you, we're flying sideways, okay? The winds at that altitude were very strong, and we had a, a good 30-degree crab into the wind uh, just to maintain uh, direction on the localizer. And as we started to descend through 500 feet, uh, Jim makes the callouts, and the tower says, uh, uh, regional airline, one, two, three, do you want a wind check? He says, negative. He continues. And when it runways in sight, okay, landing. And so we get down to 200 feet, and the airplane oral unit says, minimums, minimums. And he cues up the mic and says, wind check. And the tower reports that the winds were whatever they were. I'm not really sure, but you know, 270 at, at 35, which through the calculation that he had given them earlier was below our max crosswind limitation. And he goes, Roger, landing. So he looks at me and he goes, you got it? I said, yeah, I got it. So came in and just about 50 feet crossing the threshold, still in a good crab uh, with this really strong wind. And as we got into the flare, I simultaneously uh, pulled back on the yoke and stepped on the rudder to get the nose aligned with the runway center line. And I put aileron into the wind so that the wings remained perfectly level. and came down center line, hovering about three feet off the runway. I saw that we were not drifting from center line, so then I just continued to land. As we touched down, the upwind gear touched down, and we held it, and it looked like it was good. So we still could have gone around at that point if we had to, but everything was looking good. So I continued with the landing, uh, you know, pulled a full reverse, and taxied off the runway, and he looked at me, he goes, that was a damn good job. That was, that was like the best crosswind landing I've ever seen. Good job. I'm really proud of you. And coming from Jim, uh, a man who had a reputation of demanding excellence and had no patience for the un underprepared or you know those that were soft in the attitude and got their feelings hurt, coming from him, that was a big deal for me. And I'll never forget it. I learned so much that month. And matter of fact, we flew together probably another two or three months while we were both at that company. Uh, he had moved on uh, much earlier than I did, obviously. And, you know, I really, I do wish him well. Uh, and what I learned from there is back to that motto that I discussed earlier in the show, cooperate and graduate. You're not always going to jive with your, your pilot, 
your, your fellow pilot, whether that's your captain or your first officer or even your flight attendant. You may just not jive, but that's okay. Because if you maintain your positive attributes and you're humble, you have patience, you know, you strive for excellence, you constantly learn, your career could be a lot less dramatic, a lot less stressful. And that's really what makes a good aviation career. It's the ability to maintain a positive professional atmosphere at all times. Now, when you upgrade to captain, it gets a lot easier because you set the tone in the cockpit. You set the tone with the flight, the flight crew, with the flight attendants, with dispatch. And really, you have all this control. But as a first officer, you're a chameleon because you have to adapt not just your, your, not your personality, but your attitude. You have to adapt because of your environment. And once you get that down, coming to work and dealing with conflicting personalities is really not that big of a deal. And this is one of the main things that I've taken away over the years as a professional aviator is getting along with all types is not just crucial to the safe outcome and open communication of the flight, it is also crucial to reducing the threats and the issues that may come up during a typical sequence. So another episode of Squawk Ident is in the books. Episode 12 was a little more serious than I usually uh, like to dive into the topics, but I felt it was important to discuss uh, not only hazardous attitudes, but positive attributes and uh, why it's so important uh, out there on the line to maintain a professional standard, to be able to communicate well. Uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about everything I had in my notes. Um, maybe in the future episodes, we'll kind of dive into some of my favorite reads. Uh, some books that have really motivated me over the years, uh, one of which is a book called Crucial Conversations, and uh, we'll, we'll dive more into that on a future episode. Uh, I'd like to uh, just take a moment and thank everyone for listening to Squawk Ident. The amount of support that I have recently received has been overwhelming. And remember, www.aviatortony.com, that's Alpha Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, Osco November, Yankee.com. From there, you can contribute, you can listen, and you can shop. If you're listening on the Apple Podcast site, please send a, a good review if you enjoy the show. And if you'd like uh, very fast access to the Aviator Tony website, uh, go to aviatortony.com forward slash episodes, and on the upper corner of uh, your smartphone or your Apple phone, you can actually save the page to your home screen. It's uh, almost like having an app right on your phone. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search Squawk Ident Podcast. Again, I'd like to thank all of you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Make sure you keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other.